Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Good morning. Can I invite you to take your Bibles and open with me to the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. Hebrews 12, we're going to begin in verse 1 this morning, work our way through the first three verses as we continue in this series uh, through the book of Hebrews. And um, hey, I'm grateful you're here and that we get to uh, celebrate worship together today. As you're turning there, let me give you just a couple things by way of a uh, uh, commercial or really maybe begin with a word of thanks for those of you hundreds who served on Tuesday at our, at our Freedom Celebration, our 4th of July. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for being a part of that. Um, we really had the opportunity to represent Jesus before our city, and you did it so well. I know it was hot. I know it was a long day, and yet you came out and uh, you you loved well. Um, I asked our friends at the uh, at the police department because I know you don't always trust the numbers the preacher said because he could tell you that a thousand people showed up for a meeting in a phone booth. And uh, I know that, I know that, I know that. But uh, uh, the best estimate the police department gave us is that we, we served somewhere between 10 and 12,000 people conservatively uh, on that day. Now, not all of those, yeah, praise the Lord. Not all of those are on campus. Many of them found places, as, as you know, found places at the school and some of the places around us, but he said they wore the asphalt out on Winstead Avenue, crossing back and forth, trying to get to the food trucks and the different things. So, hey, all of that, we do, we do that event uh, really just as a way of just opening the door of conversation, opening the door of friendship and kinship with our neighbors, because we know that the majority of people that come aren't connected to Inglewood, and uh, they know about us. Some only know us as the firework church or what have you, but uh, all we're trying to do is to make sure that when life happens, because y'all know life happens to everybody, right? When life happens and someone starts looking around for an answer, we want to be, be the first name they think of to look for an answer. How can you how can you help me put perspective around this thing that's taking place in my life? And uh, so thank you for serving and making that a possibility and uh, grateful uh, for you. Also, you probably noticed in your worship folder next week, we have the opportunity to, uh, to extend a call to uh, Pernell Ingram to join us as a pastor to children here at Inglewood. And you'll have an opportunity to do that at the end of each worship service next week. That information's in the worship folder. And then a couple weeks after that, you'll have an opportunity to do the same thing again with, so this may be news to some of you, but uh, we've been working with a, uh, a Spanish speaking, a Hispanic church planter and uh, trying to work through the process of bringing him on our staff. And uh, we've gotten approval from some of the stuff that we needed to do. We got approval for some of that this past week. So in the next couple of weeks, I'll be introducing you to um, Pastor Oscar Benitez and uh, his wife Catalina, who will join us as pastor of Hispanic ministries here at Inglewood and uh, will be our 
primary, our focal point church planter at the Hispanic mission that we're establishing in Roanoke Rapids at the church property that God provided for us uh, in recent months there. So those are exciting things. Catalina, his wife, will actually begin serving with King's Academy. She'll be teaching Spanish to kindergarten, first, and second graders. Can I tell you, I struggle with English. The idea that somebody in first grade who can write their name in re- with a really fat pencil. Do we still use fat pencils and paper, Miss Nelly? We do that? Okay, so that, that, that they're going to learn Spanish too. And I may have to go sit back there. So you may come by the office and see me sitting in a first grade class learning Spanish along with them. But uh, Catalina will be joining our staff at King's Academy uh, while she's also part of the church plant. So we're excited about that. Big days, big exciting things taking place here at Inglewood. I want you to be aware of those because, hey, none of that's possible without you being willing to uh, not only... Uh, not only serve, but to give and uh, to make possible that the, the gospel is proclaimed uh, near and far for his namesake and glory. Now you're in Hebrews 12. Let me introduce the message to you this way and say that if you could take the book of Hebrews and boil it down to a single theme, I think you could do that and it would be three words. Jesus is better. Jesus is a better lawgiver. Jesus is a better leader. Jesus is the better priest. Jesus is better than the angels. Jesus is better than the prophets. Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Savior, through which everyone who would ever be redeemed would be saved. But how long do you wait for all of that? How long is too long? What does it take to press on and to keep your eyes focused as you go through difficult things? That's the question of faith. The question of faith is, can I trust what I don't yet see? Now, the difficulty with that is that faith is, by definition, verse 1 of chapter 11 tells us it's the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things we don't yet see. Verse 2 says that it's essential because through it, through faith, the saints of old, the saints who never even knew the name Jesus, who only looked forward to a promise, the saints of old gained approval from God. And verse 6 says that anyone who comes to God must believe that God is and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. Faith is essential. It's required in order for us to be right with God. But it's hard. It's hard at times. It's difficult. That's why we see throughout the book of Hebrews in the chapters leading up to chapter 12 here, we've seen multiple warnings. Don't quit. Don't stop. There's no better source of hope than the Son of God. Stand firm. Press on. Be steadfast. Now much of the book of Hebrews fits under the genre, if you will, of exhortation. In other words, it's a call to action. It tells us, here's something I want you to do. Here's something I want you to believe. Here's a way we want you to feel. But chapter 11 took kind of a a detour from that. It It was really testimony. It was narrative. Here's how people who believe. Here's how they acted. Here's what they did. Here's what you can look to as an example. But now as we come back to chapter 12, we we return to this exhortation. A call to do something. A call to feel something. Because it builds on the fact that all of chapter 11 shows us that those who do gain approval. In fact, 
the last two verses of chapter 11 said, And all these, all these saints in chapter 11, all these have gained approval through their faith, yet they did not receive what was promised because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us, they'd not be made perfect. Their faith opened the door. But God saw fit that, that through the law, through through. Moses and the prophets that they could not come to fulfillment completion so that you and I could be included in this kingdom where Jesus sits solely as king. As we return to the exhortation, we're called to run the race and to consider Jesus and to do it with enduring faith. We're in Hebrews 12. I want to begin in verse 1. And can I invite you to stand with me if you're able in honor of the Word of God. If you're joining us from some other place, I'm grateful that you're here with us here at Inglewood today. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing. Thank you for being a part of our worship service. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation. The Bible says in Hebrews 12 in verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance, And the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. Would you pray with me? Father, even in these moments, would you teach us what it is to run the race, the race that you've set, and to do so considering Jesus. And then I pray our response, as we do, would bring honor and glory to his name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, there's an outline that we've made available for you. You can get it on the app. Um, or, hey, if you're in the room, you could scan that QR code that's right down there by your feet. takes you kind of to our dashboard. Or you could, if you're in another place, perhaps even text the word notes to the number that you see on the screen. We'd be honored to send you that outline. It's a very simple outline today because it brings to focus three critical focal points for a faith that endures. Three things to focus on. Three places to look, if you will. So I want you to notice with me, first of all, if we're going to have a faith that endures, we're called to firstly to look around, to look around. That's actually where the story begins in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1. It's a reminder of that which is around us. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let's lay aside every encumbrance. You may have a translation that says weight. Every weighty thing, every encumbrance, and the sin which so easily entangles us. And run with endurance the race set before us. The writer of Hebrews points, first of all, to the example that we have of this great cloud of witnesses. Those that we just talked about in chapter 11. There is a great crowd, and the picture here is one of an athletic Contest. So you'd have to picture a stadium or a coliseum or an amphitheater with, with seating stacked up and crowds all around. Picture yourself at a Panthers game when they were winning. And, uh, and I mean, it's surrounded by people. They're everywhere. And they're cheering for what's going on on the field. You and I are on the field. And in the stands are not just 
people who love the sport or a sport, but they're all those who have once competed on the field and when they finished, they moved to the stands. And they're in the stands as they, as they looked down, they offer encouragement for us. They are an example. They are the saints of old who ran before us and they bear witness to the reliability of this faith that we've been called to. They're the ones who have experienced victory and those who've experienced hardship. They're the ones who saw miracles and those who died looking for miracles. They're those who experienced and gathered a harvest as well as those who sowed in tears and yet never saw the opportunity to reap. They're a crowd of those who regardless of the outcome, regardless of the end point, ran faithfully the race. And now they surround us. And they give us a word of encouragement. Notice their encouragement or the exhortation. We first look at their example and we say that which moved them, that which caused them to, to, to embrace this, that which caused them to, um, to pursue a life of faith, that, that should also move us. That which they pursued should warrant our pursuit. That which caught their heart should grasp our heart. How they ran and how they endured should be how we run. And their exhortation is this, lay aside. Lay aside what? Lay aside encumbrances, every encumbrance or every weight. Lay aside the, the bulk or the burden or the hindrance, the impediment. Now, here's the idea. Picture, if you will, um, a runner who's preparing, to, who's preparing to run on a long distance run. Wouldn't it be odd to see someone show up at the Boston Marathon and they're, carrying a, they're, carrying a, they're wearing a weighted vest like they're at a CrossFit Games or something. They've got a backpack on and it's full of stuff. I mean, they've got all kinds of stuff on there and they decided, hey, you know what? Everybody else wears those little lightweight clothes. Not me, I'm wearing a parka. And forget the tennis shoes, man. I want some combat boots and I'm going to run the Boston. I'm running with all this extra weight. That would be ridiculous. In fact, you'd find, you'd find there's a large market for those folks that says, hey, listen, you could buy these tennis shoes that weigh three ounces or you could spend twice as much money and get these that weigh 2.95 ounces. You'll like them better. And they'd go, man, I, to save half an ounce, I'd do it. I, that's laying aside encumbrances. It's saying these things that, are, that I could weigh myself down with, they might even be good things. In fact, I think that's a contrast that's here as he talks about the weights and the sin. Sin is obviously bad things that could trap us, but sometimes we have to be willing to lay aside some of the good things that could slow us down in pursuit of the race. And his call, their call is simply this, get lean. Get lean from the good things that slow us down. Get lean from the sin which traps us, which ensnares us, which entangles us. Shed those things. Why? They're keeping you from running the race. And the race is the point. Throw off the weight. Throw off the sin. That's the call of the witnesses. But remember the, the ones calling. Hear, hear their voices. They're not... They're not nameless, faceless individuals in the crowd. 
They're ones we've been introduced to. They're part of the dozens of people that we just read about in chapter 11. Listen to Samson's voice as he cries out, watch out for unchecked pleasures. If you pursue pleasure, it'll get you. Don't let it be your master. It's the cry of Jacob as he limps to the banister overlooking the field. And he cries out, don't miss the mark. It's David declaring, stay off of rooftops. Be where you're supposed to be. If you wander, even in a good place, it can trap you and leave a wake of destruction in your path. It's Noah's charge. Even if you have no idea what God's saying, trust Him, follow His voice, build the ark, and gather the remnant. God's purposeful, even if you don't understand. It's Abel's testimony. As he cries out, you can trust God. Wait, Chris. All those others in some way missed the mark, but Abel, he was a righteous man. Did he die in his righteousness? Yes. And yet he still declares with his lips, you can trust God. Why would we listen to the voices of the crowd? Why would we hear their declaration? Why would we yield to their exhortation? Why? Because there's a race set before us. That word race is from the Greek word agon. It's where we would get the English word agonize. <laughs> it, uh, it speaks not of a, a short burst of energy. It's a contest. It's not... It's not the short, it's not a 40-yard dash. It's the picture of something that requires long endurance. It's a marathon. One thing I've learned about endurance sports is that long endurance sports, long races, long rides, distance races, they're as much about soul work as they are strength work. Uh, just about anybody can run 40 yards. There's a, you can just do that just on sheer wheel. You can't do 26.2 miles on sheer wheel. There's some stuff got to take place in your mind in order to be able to fulfill that. It's, there's a mental set that's there. Some of you know, I, I, I would call myself an amateur cyclist. I enjoy riding, uh, I enjoy, I enjoy riding bikes and, uh, I ride on the road. I won't tell you which road in case some of you don't like me. The, uh, I ride on the road and uh, I like to ride distance. What I found in, in riding distance rides, which by the way used to be from my driveway to the edge of the road and back. That was distance at one time. But now I ride 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 miles uh, on a bike without anybody chasing me. I mean, it's uh, those kind of things. And what I found is, is that in, when, I, when I'm riding, I've, I've, developed a, I've, I've developed a perspective on rhythm. For instance, the first 12 miles of a ride, I really have to do a lot of self-talk. Because as I'm, as I'm clearing the neighborhood, I'm like, oh man, I'm so tight. Why am I doing this? All my friends are at home in their air conditioning. What am I doing? This is crazy. It's so hot. 
probably going to be cars. But I'm constantly thinking of the reason. I have to convince myself, remind myself for that first 12 months, why my body's warming up, I'm getting loose, all of these things. You're thinking, why do we care? I'm getting to a point. The first 12 miles are critical. Miles 22 to 25 are critical. Because see, it gets up, it's different between 12 and 22. You kind of feel like you're in your zone. But 22 to 25, you start thinking, I'm dying. I'm going to die right here, somewhere right here. So you have to convince yourself that it hurts, but don't stop. It's hard, but keep pedaling. Don't quit. Because if you stop, you just got to start back. It's, it's why I don't ride short distance. People would say, well, why don't you just ride laps around your neighborhood? Sometimes it's helpful to be 25 miles from home when you get tired. Because you'll either ride back or walk back. Or you got to pick up the phone and make the call of shame to your wife. Hey, babe, it's your hero here. Yeah, I quit. I'm a loser. Total. Come find me. Uh, that, well, that's terrible. I mean, I'd rather die. Find me in a puddle on the side of the road than do that. So, build a little accountability in. Ride yourself to Spring Hope and turn around. That way you can find your way back and you're like, oh, I got to get back home. Anyway, you get the idea? You have to mentally work and you never quit. Because if you stop or slow down, it doesn't help, it harms. Because if you stop to get started, it's harder the second time than it was the first time. Now that's true in cycling, it's true in endurance running, it's also uniformly affirmed in the scriptures. The Bible tells us never to pull back, but always to press forward. Let me just say to you, I've been doing what I do long enough to have people tell me along the way, really, Chris, I'm just overtaxed. I think the best thing for us to do, our family, we've got a little zealous. We're just going to pull back, just take a break, maybe see how things go, and then we'll, then we'll just get back in. Let me tell you, almost to the man, that never works out. What almost to the person what almost always happens is they drift off into some place they didn't want to be. Why? The, because God said you ought to press forward and run the race with endurance. Not pause and see if you can keep from quitting. Not only do we look around, but number two, we're told to look inside look inside look introspectively look at ourselves Hebrews 12 verse 2 tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus the author and perfecter of faith who for the joy set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God now a couple things I want you to see here I want you to Notice, first of all, the word endurance. Now, that word is given to us now the second time in this section. It's, been, it's used 32 times in the scriptures, and it always speaks of perseverance or steadfastness or stick-to-itiveness. It's always about pressing on, perseverance. 
And we're told to fix our eyes on Jesus who did that. Wait a minute, Chris. You said we were looking inside. Now you're saying we're fixing our eyes on Jesus. Yes. Because if you're a Christ follower, he's here. Inside. And as you look in, you get a perspective at times that you can't see apart from that, apart from that reflection, apart from that looking at him, this example that he gives for us. Notice how Jesus did with everything you and I experience by way of weakness, with everything you and I experience by way of struggle, Jesus experienced the same things. He was in always tempted, struggled even as we are, yet without yielding or surrendering or without sin. In fact, where you and I struggle with faith, Jesus was faithful through and through. How do you know? John 17, verse 4, Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, I glorified you, Father, on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus not only endured and fulfilled, but we're told some here how he went about that. We're told that he endured the cross while despising the shame. Despising the shame. If you think about ourselves, looking at his picture and then thinking about ourselves, you and I sometimes, we feel the shame. Here, let's use a different word. We feel disapproval. But we don't just settle it with despising it. Sometimes we yield to it or we succumb to it. Jesus didn't. He despised it. He didn't believe it. He didn't acquiesce to it. He endured it while despising it. In the world, the context, the place where we live in our day. And I think increasingly as the days come, you and I, if we're faithful to Christ, will find ourselves at the receiving end of someone's scorn. Someone will say, how could you be so narrow? How could you think so little? How could you believe that about these things? How could you? And the pressure within us to to please, the desire to not hear others' disapproval could drive us. You could call that peer pressure. You could call it a number of different things. Jesus tells us you're going to endure it while despising it, not yielding to it, not changing because of it, recognizing this is, this is what they think, but it's not true. Enduring it while despising it. It's a call as we look inside, we recognize we're too weak for that, but Jesus did it perfectly. When we look inside, we often find in ourselves a misplaced confidence in our own faithfulness. Most of us think, man, maybe I can do this and do it well. Maybe I can finish the race. Maybe I can accomplish all that God's called me to. Really? You know, if you can do it, if you can do it, You'd get all the praise for it. In fact, you'd probably throw your own praise party. Well, I'm a, look what I've done. I've accomplished it. I've lived perfectly. I've been faithful to the end. The fact is, that most of us would go, well, that's ridiculous. I don't even want to say that out loud. And we think of ourselves, we reali in reality look more like the Apostle Paul than we do King Jesus. If you're taking notes, jot down Romans 7 
verse 14 and following. Listen to how Paul assesses himself. He says, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm a flesh sold into bondage to sin for what I'm doing. I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I'd like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. For if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but the sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle, evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. Can I translate that into South Carolina speak? My want to and my get her done don't line up. I could want to do well, but I don't have that ability within me. If I'm going to do well, I'm going to need someone to bring my faith in line, which is why we're told that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of faith. He's the author. That word means originator, the one who gives us faith. He's the perfecter, the one who brings it to completion. He's the one who starts it and the one who finishes it. And you and I, when we start to realize that I don't have it within me, God, the more I want to, the more I miss. We find ourselves in a spot that either we quit, we sit down, we turn back, or we call out, Jesus, help me. I almost wanted to say, Jesus, take the wheel, but I didn't. Some of you country music fans know what I did. Anyway, so... The more we recognize in ourselves our inability, the more we find ourselves dependent on Jesus' ability. His ability, his, our need for him, it's our, it's our sense of cause. We look inside, we realize, I can't, oh Lord, I need you, oh, I need you. I've had grandchildren at my house for the last couple of weeks and uh, what a blessed time. The youngest one, 11 months old, she's learned a new trick. Jody and I have successfully taught her since she's been there. They, she may have been doing it before, but not as good as she does it now. But uh, when, when, when we come in the room and she's sitting around, she smiles so big, which means give me your wallet. But anyway, but then she does this. You say, well, she just lifted up her hands. No, she's saying... Pick me up. Help me. I can't get up. You pick me up. You help me. We'll get to this when we finish Hebrews, but that's why this is one of the most incredible and expressive postures of worship that there is. It's a reminder to you and I, God, I can't, but you do. God, I'm unable, but you are. God, I need you. Oh, I need you. I know some folks, they wouldn't raise their hand if they had a question. Much less to make that confession. Even if they said it with their lips, they would say, well, that's, that would just prove that I can't do it on my own. Precisely. Something we grab as we look inside. We can't. Nor were we ever intended to. That's why he's both the author and the perfecter of our faith. 
we find as we look inside, sometimes we're hampered by our short-sighted perspective. Sometimes in the midst of life, we lose sight of the big picture. We go through a difficult place and we begin to focus on the difficulty. We become fixated and overwhelmed with brokenness, with, with suffering, with death, with injustice, with sin, with relational struggles. We find ourselves so fixated on these things because they are so consuming of our lives and they hurt and we suffer but if we're not careful they'll take all of our attention removing it from the big picture that Jesus told us to focus on that's why Jesus shows us a different focus it says for the joy set before him he endured the cross Jesus didn't say man I love the cross Jesus said I endured the cross because I love those that the cross saves I have endured those things but as I was on the joy of salvation of what was coming of the hope of the reconciliation of the peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation being gathered around the throne, giving glory and honor where it belongs, experiencing the fullness of life that they were created for, for that joy set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame. It was the joy set before him. By the way, did you recognize the second time we've seen that phrase? There was joy set before him, but there's a race set before us. Same word. Joy set before him that he focused on we have a race set before us that we're called to turn our attention to it reminds us that God has marked out a race for us just like he marked out joy but while he's marked out a race he's also inscribed the names on the trophy before you and I ever set out from the starter's pistol you say how can he do that he's both the author and the perfecter of faith he knows he knows how we'll finish before we ever get started. And he makes possible the finish. God's not sitting around in heaven going, man, I'm pulling for you. Do your best. Do your best. That's ridiculous. He's saying, Look inside and realize you don't have it and then fix your eyes on the one who is the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega, the author and finisher of faith who's fulfilled everything. Look to Him. Look to Him. See, a look inside reveals that you and I are incapable of this on our own, but it prompts us to number three, not look around, not look inside, but to look up. To look up. That's why verse 2 began with the instruction to fix our eyes on Jesus, to ignore the distractions, to discipline ourselves away from the shiny objects that might pull us out of the race. The idea here is repeated in verse 3. He says, For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you'll not grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. There's something about considering Jesus that provides perseverance in the trial. That word consider. It's not a 
passing observation. It's a deep, reasoned examination. The word literally means to reason through or think out carefully. Reason through, consider all that Jesus is, all that he's done, all that he's doing, all that he's called us to. Think deeply on this. Consider him who endured. That's the third time we've seen that word. Chris, is it is it significant that God would tell us to endure not once, not twice, but three times in three verses as he launches out into what to do? And he says, endure, endure, endure. I think it's significant. Why? Because Chris Aiken's reading the Bible. I think God knows that you've got to tell me something more than once because you can set out to endure and then sit down. You can set out to finish and then look away. You can set out to finish, find it's hard, and find something else. But he says, endure, endure, endure. It's the, it's the agonizing aspect of this. He tells us to endure three times because many of us won't endure to the end. There's an idea that's foreign to the scriptures that's prominent in our culture at times. That... I'm when I say our culture, I'm not talking about the world at large. I'm talking about the Christian world. Well, if you, what you got to do, if you've never done it, you got to pray a prayer so you can get baptized. And then a herd of unicorns will take, take up residence in your rainbow garden. And then the contractors will just show up at your house and keep adding on to your garage to add all the little toys that you want to get. And everything will be better and you'll live happily ever after. And while that's entertaining, it's fable. It's not true. Here's what Jesus said about this life that we pursue. John 16 and verse 33, in this world you will have troubles. That word troubles, the word thylipsis in the Greek, it means pressures, it's uh, difficulties, it's tribulations. In this world you'll have that. If you don't have that, you're not on the right team. Because he says if you're on the team, this is what your reality is. In this world, you'll have troubles, but take courage, I've overcome the world. He said at the end of the race, at the finish line, there I am. I've overcome it, and I'm in here. I'm helping you get to the overcoming. The idea that, man, if I get saved, everything's going to be so much better for me. In what universe? I mean, in some ways, yes. But in other ways, particularly as it relates to the world you were living in, not so much. The life of a Christ follower is not one of ease, but it is one of joy and inestimable worth. How could it be joyous? Back to my grandchildren. Been a minute since Jody and I have had little blessings of neediness around. I wouldn't take anything for it. Joy. But there have been some minutes along the way I thought, 
maybe if I went on one of those long bike rides, it'd be good for me. Because there are a lot of words. Are you following me? Chris, how, why would anybody get saved if, 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 if it's really hard? Have you thought about the end of the race? You know, apart from Christ, there's nothing to look forward to. For the joy set before it, looking up, Lord Jesus, help me. See, that's what sustains us as we tire when we fall down when we look back when we struggle when we're hit when we pour out every ounce of energy that we have to push ourselves up off the mat one more time when it comes time to do those things we won't find the power within us we won't find it between the covers of the latest self-help book and we won't find it by trying to find a faith system that just requires less. We're called to endure. That's where you find strength. Just one more step, just one more pedal, just one more press forward. We have to look up. I talked about biking. Let me do one more. Sometimes in the middle of one of those long rides, I'll catch myself, especially as I get tired. Just looking down, I'm watching my feet do this. Looking down, this scares my wife right now. She's thinking, you better be looking for holes in front of you. But uh, I'm just looking down and as I look down, my foot goes down and then it goes down. It's like, it's getting slower, Chris, that's right. Because if you're stuck here looking down at your circumstances, it gets hard. But athletes know if you'll just look up and you'll look forward. Keep your eye out there. Your performance here changes. There's sometimes on some of those hills around Red Oak and beyond that uh, you start looking at a hill and you're like, goodness gracious, in Jesus' name, this is hard. <sighs> Dying. And you're like, I, it says I got 22 miles to go, but there's a signpost at the crest of this hill. If I can just make it to there, I bet I can get coast for a minute. And then, whew, be careful what goes down, got to come back up again. You go back down the other side, and you're like, there's a mailbox. I see it. I can do it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes in this life, it's about that. It's about in your spiritual life going, this is a hard season, but if I can just get to there, and if I just keep pedaling, if I just keep moving, if I just keep running, I'll finish the race. You and I are called not to back off, but to confront the fatigue, and to do so by considering Jesus who endured overwhelming hostility at the hands of sinners. By the way, he endured the hostility at the hands of sinners but he didn't come to survive a crucible of conflict caused by sinful people. He came to save those who caused the conflict. He didn't look and say, well, I just got to get through this thing. He came to rescue those who caused this thing. 
He didn't say, you're something he's got to get past. He said, you're the reason I came. You're the one. You're the purpose. I didn't come for the well, but for the sick, he said. And by the way, he was victorious. Now, we've talked about endurance stuff. Let me give you one from, from the world of running, which I don't do, by the way. That's why I got into cycling, because I don't like to run. But the Boston Marathon, one of the most famed endurance races in the world, run every year, except in COVID. Anyway, but it was run every year. And, and uh, I decided today to consult a deep research partner, Google, and I put in there, Winter Boston Marathon. I thought, nobody remembers who won, but... The first thing pops up are these images. There's actually a website dedicated to the photo finish of people that finished the Boston Marathon. And here's what it looks like. There's a tape finish line that's stretched across. They're craning forward with all their energy, arms back, putting everything they've got to get across that line and try to be first. And that's the picture of it. In fact, that picture becomes iconic. You'll find it on just about every news source following the marathon. They'll go, so-and-so won the Boston Marathon. So-and-so won the Boston. So-and-so won it. Jesus' victory picture doesn't look like that. It's not like this. It's like this. It's, it's not, I finished. It's being hung on a cross. And looking down at those that taunted you. If you're the son of God, get yourself down. If you're the Messiah, show us. It's the thief left and right. Get down from here. Get us down from here too. It's looking at those who took your garments and cast dice for them. It's turning your head, looking up to heaven and saying, Father... Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. You and I are the them. And the victory is that cross. Jesus came not to get out of the nails, but to save those who nailed him. He's called us to live lives enduring the race like that. Is that the Jesus you're familiar with? The king who became a servant that he might bring you into the kingdom, the Savior who endured your sinful insults and your pleas for mercy while inviting you to come to him? Is that the voices that you hear in the stadium? So I was thinking about this. I realized that the invitation is not just to those who've not yet entered the race, but really for those who've been in the race and may struggle with Enduring, persevering, and finishing those who've been running a while. Did you know that Inglewood, this is extra trivia for you. Did you know that Inglewood has a birthday coming up Tuesday of this week, July the 11th? We celebrate 58 years. On July the 11th, 1965, our church was constituted. In Baptist terms, that means we was born. He's born. Now, it wasn't our first meeting. We'd been around a minute. In fact, the first revival meeting was in August, August the 20th, 1962. The week before, they'd had cottage prayer meetings around the area, prayed, and then 
on August the 20th, they had their first meeting and people made commitments to, we'll be a part of establishing a church in this part of town that will minister to the city. And that next week they began, they formed and began the Westridge Baptist Mission. They went on and purchased land and raised funds and plans were laid for them to build a building. And on July the 11th, 1965, Inglewood was born as an independent Baptist church. Why? Why? Were there no churches in Rocky Mount? Sure there were. They were planted by a church. North Rocky Mount Baptist Church, I think it was. They were planted here because of a sense of need in the community. Yep, that's true, but also because of a sense of calling from God. A calling to love neighbors, to preach the gospel, to minister to the hurting, to disciple believers, to be a church. In the next 58 years, would see moves from across locations. It would see exponential growth. It would see thousands of people saved and missionary work move from a city to cities across continents and around the world over 58 years. Englewood would gain the reputation of being a great place for families with ministries to students and children that was unparalleled in the area. Become a place where worship and the preaching and teaching of the Word were considered some of the best that you could ever be a part of. Where our heart for the city became exemplary as the church grew from 161 names. By the way, you can see those on the plaque on the stone right out in front of the building. To today, 2,116 people in membership. Now, I tell you that not so that you'd live with eyes in the rearview mirror. But to ask the question, what do the next 58 years look like? See, those aren't somebody else's years. Those are ours. They're the ones for those in the race that have to determine, will we continue, persevere, press on, finish the race? Some today, we ought to hear the cry from the stands of our stadium. The saints of old, the voices of those who paid the price in days past, who stacked chairs and unstacked chairs, who laid out petitions, who went to Sunday school in one building and drove across town to go worship in another and then went back to pick up trash in another. Got to hear their voices today. Voices of those who paid that price, who endured, who fought distraction and fatigue and the allure of the next shiny thing, those who moved from comfort to considering Him who endured. The saints that rocked babies, who sacrificed. Those people who in those days said, honey, we make, we make this much, but we could be a part of this. Let's, let's give this and be a part of something that outlives us. If we listen to their voice, how does it inform us? Will we continue to be a people that are known for strong ministries to transforming homes, to seeing the gospel affect whole families and households? Will we be a people who are known for encouraging, strengthening, building up children and students and launching missionaries around the world? Or would we sit on the side of the road and 
claim we caught a Charlie horse and call for a pickup. Or maybe just disappear. Would we be those that said, well, somebody else needs to do that? Or would we be those that said, I was created for a race that was set before me. And I'm going to run it with endurance like Jesus, who for the joy set before him. That I might one day step off the race course and into the stadium and cheer on the next generation of those that come behind us. You and I can't do anything to affect the last 58 years, but we can choose the next 58 years. Will we have the courage like those who came before? Will we have the courage to heed the call? Will we have the courage to look back and say, therefore, considering we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the good things, and the sin, the bad things, which so easily entangle us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, the beginner and the end, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down in victory at the right hand of the Father, where He intercedes for you and I, by the way. Consider Him, will we claim, who endured such hostilities at the hands of sinners, that we'd not grow weary and lose heart. Will we cheer on the next generation? Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.